Are you ready to live a more free, healthy, and abundant life? Transform your yard into a food forest and create a system for self-reliance that's easy and enjoyable with our friends at Food Forest Abundance. No matter where you're starting from, you can become more self-reliant. And you can take your self-reliance to the next level by becoming a producer of your own food through growing and foraging. And learn how to turn your property into an income-producing source of economic self-reliance. They can help you get off-grid and learn what systems to employ for food, water, and energy self-reliance. And live abundantly and in full connection with your property and what you produce. Click the link in the description to get started with your very own food forest and have your own sustainable source of livelihood and become self-sufficient with food forest abundance. Just click the link in the description to get started with your very own food forest today. Welcome back to Beyond Classified. I'm Chris Matthew. Today my guest is Troy McLaughlin. He is a strong proponent of the electric universe theory and Saturn theory. His first publication, The Saturn Death Cult, is a discussion on the links between planetary catastrophism, ancient mythology, and their connection to the ancient and modern occult ritual. Troy, welcome. How you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having me on. Yes, thank you so much for joining us. I can't wait to get into this discussion. Uh, we're going to be talking about your research into what's considered the Saturn Death Cult and the original cosmology that this stemmed from, uh, as well as I'd like to get into the global situation that we're currently in and how this is all part of a much larger ongoing occultist agenda playing out over mm -hmm. centuries, really. Uh, now, sure. this is your first time on. Tell us a little bit more about your background and what led you to do this research. Oh, okay. Well, I I wrote the book uh, now getting on over 10 years ago. Uh, it's in its second edition now, which is much better than the first edition and so on. But um, going back even further than that, I, I'd always had an interest in uh, ancient history uh, and uh, had come across while I was at uh, university in New Zealand, um, where I was studying uh, Egyptology and biblical history. I came across the writings of Emanuel Velikovsky, which uh, were not well uh, liked by the uh, academic world at that time, and still to this day is considered one of the, the great heretics. And I ha had an experience where I had no idea who Velikovsky was. It's just an interesting book. It happened to be signed towards the professor I was studying under. Um, and and uh, so I approached him with, uh, and I said, what do you know about this? And I, I got the... Uh, I got the initial uh, response, I don't do Velikovsky, and it was said with some aggression. Yeah. And I, I thought at the time, um, you know, uh, crikey, that's, that's, that's pretty heavy. I, I, I actually tried. I said, but, and again, I don't do Velikovsky. This guy was a nice guy. I, I have no problems with the guy himself or anything, but when it came to that, he was a, a no-show uh, in even trying to explain an alternative. He'd probably obviously had enough people coming and telling him that his own work was uh, uh, completely, uh, what's the word, 
uh, you know, had been kicked out of the window by uh, Velikovsky's own work. Because a lot of people do, uh, who, who don't know who Velikovsky was, he was a guy who's known for his weird uh, cosmology, uh, planetary catastrophism. He's the father of that um that 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 kind of thinking but prior to that uh, by a quirk of publication he actually wanted to do a lot of historical reconstruction rather than uh, natural history uh reconstruction but uh, the natural history came out first and that's what he what he is known for um i was looking at the historical construction and the reaction i got was uh, one where it was like oh, great okay I, I just made me more interested um in checking out this stuff so for years I've uh, followed, um, you know, the, the works of Velikovsky, people who've been involved in it and the progression over those years and such. Um, and uh, I did so while, uh, you know, undergoing a career. I started a career in the television uh, as far as um, uh, Television New Zealand, stringing with them as a, as a sound recordist and uh, working with stringing crews in daily news. And, uh, and ultimately ended up moving to Hong Kong to get involved in the film industry there. And throughout that time in Hong Kong, I'm now living in the UK, um, throughout that time in Hong Kong, I, I just kept tabs on the whole um, uh, alternative, uh, uh, you know, his, history, uh, you know, scene and stuff, you know, the, the, the uh, uh, alternative um, scholarship that is, you know, being done by various people uh, around the world and giving a very, very different idea as to how our history is formed and, and what's going on. And I kept uh, a lot of interest also in the esoteric occult side of these things, which I think is as much a valid part of history as, as what academia um, says we should look at. And, uh, um, you know, say uh, 10 years ago, I felt uh, that it was time to uh, write something on a level that I had come to understand uh, with regards how occult thinking merges with a um, uh, with um, a theory in the electric universe model of alternative research uh, in, uh, that is called Saturn theory and how that impacts uh, a lot of modern occult and esoteric thinking. Right. And I think a good place to start would be with uh, Velikovsky's cosmology. And this is basically what would be considered the electric universe, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. yeah let's start there. Uh, Tell Velikovsky's, us a little bit about it. Yeah. Well, Velikovsky's, you know, kind of the father of the electric universe. The electric universe is now very much moved on from the days of Velikovsky. Uh, but, you know, Velikovsky is very much the father of it. And, uh, um, the thing that I'm interested in, which is Saturn theory, is a subset of the electric universe. The electric universe is just simply a challenge to the uh, mainstream idea that uh, we live in a gravity-only influenced universe that is entirely uh, dictated by particle physics and uh, by Einstein, Einstein's uh, relativity uh, concepts and, and so on. So gravity is the only force out there beyond our atmosphere and space that uh, mainstream um, science uh, recognizes. The electric universe model uh, offers a different uh, uh, perspective, one in which the, uh, vast, uh, the, the, the vast part of our cosmos is uh, governed by electrical forces, which uh, is conducted by a substance called plasma, often called the fourth um, state of matter. And that plasma um, creates a universe in which uh, electrical current 
and electromagnetism are by far the most influential factors in governing how our universe, how our um, planetary uh, uh, star, stellar bodies and so on um, coexist with each other. Uh, it's um, completely, I mean, I'd say one of the, um, you know, the most uh, difficult aspects of my book is the cosmology uh, that I present uh, for people to uh, to understand. It's it's such a radical uh, reappraisal of how the solar system has uh, uh, been formed. Uh, not least of all that uh, much of what we see today was formed within the uh, within the memory, the the, the collective human memory, um, in terms of uh, the the time that humankind has been on the planet. This is something totally at odds uh, with. Uh, with uh, mainstream science and its uh, uniformitarian concepts, uh, which dictate that um, the uh, you know the the Earth uh, is billions of years of age, and that the skies we see have pretty much been that way for at least the last two billion years, certainly longer than the time humans have been on this planet. Mm. Um, we, in the Saturn theory subsection of the Electric Universe, uh, posit that in fact the skies for the ancients were very different and very frightening indeed, and that uh, these skies uh, are what is actually at the basis of a lot of what we call world mythology, and that there's a perfectly natural explanation for understanding the madhouse of mythology and what it, what it actually means. And, you know, it's, it's my opinion that uh, once you have that key, once you have that naturalist understanding of how the solar system was formed by a process of capture, um, the sun's capture of various bodies, uh, then it becomes uh, a lot more clear um, and and actually, a, a, how can I put it, a, a not natural, but a, a lot more logical as to why certain symbols um, and uh, archetypes have become so dominant in, in the human, sub, you know, collective human subconsciousness and have allowed um, for various agendas in it to exploit these uh, archetypes and symbols for their own gain. But yeah, the book uh, the book uh, has to explain itself in terms of our ex my explanation for a lot of uh, uh, occult esoteric um, thinking and symbolism uh, is explained by appealing to the Saturn theory subset of the Electric Universe and its ideas on how the the solar system was formed, you know, within the experience of uh, collective humanity. Right now, you were. You were mentioning how the skies were a much different and probably more terrifying sight for the ancients. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I understand that Saturn was one of the, or if not the largest celestial object in view at the time, right? Yes. Um, uh, I always like during an interview to give a uh, quote from a guy called um, Eduardo Cardona. He's one of these um, guys who took the uh you know uh took the torch from um Velikovsky and ran with it in terms of Saturn theories him Dave Talbot Ev, Ev Cochran uh Wallace Thornhill these are the big names in in Saturn theory uh uh you know within the electric universe circles but Duardo Cardona and I quote says that the evidence of myth which points to Saturn having once occupied a position above Earth's north polar regions is voluminous there is not a race on earth that has not preserved at least one account which states as much. Uh, according to this evidence, Saturn occupied a central position in the north celestial regions. It rotated and rotated widely, uh, but other than that, it was immovable, end of quote. 
Now, of course, this is anathema to mainstream science, the idea that the planet Saturn is one of the uh, five naked eye planets. Um, we've got to keep that in context that in the ancient times, people could see these five wandering stars that became known as the five naked eye planets. They are Mercury, Venus, uh, Mars, Saturn, and Jupiter uh, on that order. Saturn is the furthest out. It's a pinprick of light. Yet, if we take its uh, correlation in mythology, we find that mythology gives it this preeminent position at the celestial north. We also find that the north in virtually all world mythologies, especially in the Northern Hemisphere, but also in some, some Southern Hemisphere um, cultures that have migrated to the Southern Hemisphere, um, you know, Polynesian cultures and African cultures. The North place where we have the, North, uh, the, the Pole Star now, that Celestial North, not Magnetic North, not Geographic North, but Celestial North. Um, you've seen photos uh, that show the stars whirling around like a central point in the northern hemisphere um, where they turn as the earth rotates um, and such and it, cr it creates kind of like a whirlpool effect with that center point where where nothing moves that's the position that uh, mythology always identified with the abode of the gods in particular the primal and and most important god archetype which is the saturn creative god archetype um, is associated with the North in virtually every religion. We find even today that most of the uh, most of the um, temples, um, uh, you know, pyramids, things uh, of that nature, ancient, um, ancient, uh, uh, you know, what do you call it? Mo mo monuments and monoliths and so on. Most of them have a direct orientation towards celestial North. The pyramid is the most perfectly uh, positioned um uh building in terms of celestial north and planet even more so than greenwich uh than, than the greenwich observatory here on the meridian and uh in in london uh even stonehenge which definitely has relations to the sun um which is not to be confused with you know saturn the uh in, in, in we'll, we'll get into the sun's position and all this but uh, you know, Stonehenge in Britain is part of a northern line, a northern oriented line of uh, stone circles that go up through uh, the UK and, uh, um, you know, seems to have been as much oriented towards what they saw in the celestial north, this uh, abode of the gods, Lord of the Rings, uh, that, um, that, they, uh, that they talk about uh, in, the, in the various mythologies as um you know as those stone circles are towards uh um measuring the movements of the the sun uh so we have all that evidence and mythologists have known this um they've known this since studying mythology and when they stepped outside their uh homes uh you know over the last couple of hundred years and looked up they you know obviously everything that they were reading in mythology did not did not match uh what they were seeing up in the skies um knowing full well as as uh, plato and um tells us that the um uh you know the gods of mythology were the wandering stars they were the stars that bear the names uh of of these gods um you know as bodies uh in you know in, in the skies 
these things didn't look anything like the, the observations of the ancients and so on. Certainly this idea of Saturn being the most powerful celestial object, more so than the sun, um, you know, at the time when human beings were, uh, were on the planet. This made no sense in light of modern science. And so they contrived um, to uh, turn everything where you've got Saturn, whether it's Egyptian culture, whether it's Roman culture, they've turned it into sun worship. And they've contrived in such a way as to say that what they really meant was the sun that, you know, rises in the east, sets in the west. And uh, they've, uh, you know, they, they basically shaped mythology uh, in the last couple of hundred years to reflect that understanding. Uh, in Saturn theory, we come along with a very different idea and uh, where we look at mythology as, you know, being pretty much on the, um, um, on the button when it comes to uh, what they were describing, that these are actual witnessed accounts. And uh, the, um, we have an explanation for that which now, involves the planet Saturn. How far back are we talking when you're talking these ancients? We know that there have been plenty of cataclysms that have mm -hmm. reset us throughout our history. How far back yeah. does this cosmology go, and what happened to change it? Well, um, to answer that last part first, Doomsday happened, um, which is probably one of the most powerful uh, you know, archetypes lurking in the human psyche. Um, you know, down through the ages, this fear of something happening in the future that's beyond our control and could wipe us out. So that's what changed. Uh, you know, you've got your Atlantis uh, concepts and things like that. They all stem out of this concept of doomsday. But as far as giving a, uh, you know, a, a chronology, a time um, uh, date so that your listeners get an understanding of just how radical this concept is, uh, I place the capture of Saturn um, as a um, as a planetary body as a as a uh, you know planetary nebula um, where it had two terrestrial uh, satellites Mars and Earth in tow at that time its capture uh, in the in the earth I put it 12,000 BC uh, sorry 12,000 years ago 10,000 BC um, I put the doomsday event, um, at around about uh, 4,000 to 5,000 BC. Um, 4,000 BC would be about right, so about 6,000 years ago. And the period between um, 10,000 BC and uh, 4,000 BC, basically a 6,000-year period, is what I would refer to as the um, golden age of Saturn, as it's uh, told to us in the uh, mythologies, when uh, there was this paradise on Earth. For those with a biblical, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, knowledge, uh, we're talking about the days of Eden, uh, the time uh, when Adam was introduced into the Garden of Eden before the fall of mankind at the end of Eden. So the doomsday event that brought about the end of Saturn's golden age is synonymous with the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden. Uh, that's that's the uh, the periods that we're talking about. So you have a six thousand year um golden age that is you know just a wonderful time to have uh, been alive according to uh commentators in mythology hesiod for instance he's one of the guys who who talks about these uh periods of of humankind uh, ex uh humankind's experience starting with the golden age uh uh falling into a silver age falling into 
uh, a Bronze Age or heroic age and ultimately into the age that we're in now, which has been in existence since the founding of Rome, uh, a sort of an Iron Age, um, you know, not to be confused with Stone Ages and Bronze Ages that the mainstream scientific model gives us for historical uh, changes. These are the um, esoteric, um, you know, uh, ages of man. Uh, that all esoteric traditions talk about. Um, some some number six, they, they'll split up the Bronze Age into bronze and heroic. Some just have bronze and some just have heroic, and they have only five. But what's what the key for uh, Saturn theory and its cosmology in uh, going the way of Saturn having once been a captured brown dwarf uh, planetary system is that prior to this golden age, there was this uh, purple dawn of, um, you know, what they call it the purple dawn of creation, which stretches back into an unknowable distant past. There's no sort of beginning to it. It's just life existed and it existed in this, in this uh, semi-permanent state of nocturnal uh, duskiness um, that was, you know, imbued with a kind of a purple light which is one of the great keys uh, for understanding why we talk about uh, Saturn having been a, a, a brown dwarf star, and we can get into the, the science of that, how that works. But so if we take Hesiod, we take a lot of the uh, Greeks type stuff, if we even look at some of the Egyptian stuff, there is this nocturnal and particularly Mes Mesoamerican um, uh, mythology often talks about this, um, Chinese uh, and um, Vedic uh, um, mythologies, which I'm, I'm not as up with as I am with Western mythologies, but certainly Meso Mesoamerican uh, mythologies talk about this 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 um, uh, primordial duskiness, darkness. It's not it's not nighttime, but think of it like uh, being at the um, uh, being underwater, uh, being at the bottom of the ocean to about 15 feet. Um, and and what life is like down there uh, in terms of what you can see with the human eye. And you get a sense of what the world existed as for untold aeons before um, the beginning of the Golden Age that they talk about. And, of course, that beginning of the Golden Age was the initial capture um, moment, the, 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 the beginning of the capture process when Saturn came uh, into contact, electrical contact with the sun's far more powerful electrical field. Um, and uh, as a result of that, um, this brown store dwarf that the, the Earth was, you know, a satellite of with life on it for untold aeons or whatever, it suffered um, what, well, it seemed like a cataclysm at the time, but turned out to be very beneficial. It, su it su Saturn suffered a, a kind of a nova experience. It, it fissioned. And uh, in biblical terms, that's the let there be light moment um, in terms of history. You know, in, in the beginning, you know, God created the heavens and the earth. And then God said, let there be light. All right. Mm. And that's that sudden um, incredible uh, um, outpouring of uh, light onto the earth. And with it, the end of this uh, purple dawn, um, or, or, you know, of creation. And suddenly the inhabitants who survived this of the planet, you know, including humans, I'm I'm arguing, were suddenly aware of the greater cosmos. They'd never seen stars before and so on. They'd, uh, um, and, you know, that's part of the electrical aspect of it, uh, this electrical cocoon that uh, um, surrounds various 
uh, celestial bodies that have electrical fields. This was equalized and made transparent. And suddenly people could see, you know, the um, the stars and, and one in particular that seemed to be in the West and travel to the East uh, that seemed to be getting brighter all the time, um, you know, as a part of this, while Saturn now shone, you know, 20 times more brightly than it had done during the purple dawn. And for, you know, the overall concept of the book that I'm giving besides the cosmology, what you have here is a moment in time that is simply the most important moment in human history and also is, is key to understanding how things got so badly messed up over the last 6,000 years um, in, in terms of that. And that is that when you have this outpouring of light, this fissioning planet, uh, this, this brown dwarf fissioning, it created uh, for the first time in, in human experience the ability to calculate the passage of time. Prior to that, there was no way of knowing if you fell asleep, you didn't know in modern terms if you'd slept for five minutes or five days, which meant you had no ability to say to somebody, meet me here in five days and we'll get on to this. Once you have that ability to calculate um, the passage of time, you have the beginnings of civilization. And uh, that's why the Saturn God archetype um, is associated with time, is associated uh, with chronology and so on. It's one of his key associations uh, at the beginning. He brought that measure that is the foundation for all subsequent measures that govern um, humanity's march uh, into civilization as we know it. And, and eventually, of course, that gets messed up um, with the fall of the Golden Age and what happens after that. Uh, yeah, but that's um, basically what we're talking about in terms of a chronology. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely want to get into what happened with the fall of the Golden Age. But first, this is such a a dramatic shift in position mm -hmm. of planets and stars. How how could this such a, a dramatic change occur? And was it you said it was uh, basically a doomsday event? Could you describe it more? We love Ascent Nutrition. Ascent Nutrition was founded by my good friend Lance Shuttler, and it's making a huge difference in this community. They have a new product that is sweeping the nation, pine pollen. Last year, several prominent scientists started speaking out about the power of pine trees and the benefits they can offer us. Ascent Nutrition offers raw, wild-crafted pine pollen. Pine pollen contains 200 nutrients in it, making it a true superfood. It's nature's highest source of phytohormones, which support hormone and libido health for men and women. Pine pollen also supports brain health, detoxification, as well as many facets of cardiovascular health. Their pine pollen is selling fast. It's literally flying off the shelves. Ascent Nutrition is on a mission of offering deeply transformative and helpful nutrients to as many people as possible to help bring about a great collective shift in human consciousness and human health. To order your pine pollen supply and check out everything Ascent Nutrition has to offer, use the link in the description or visit GoAscentNutrition.com 
and use coupon code FKN to get 10% off your entire purchase. Yeah, so, you know, in the beginning, if you're talking about like the original fissioning of Saturn, all right. I'm talking about how after uh, okay. years later, right. when we get to our current cosmology. All right. Well, well you see, to, to understand that, you've actually got to understand how Saturn was captured in the first place, mm-hmm. uh, the process by which um, this took place. And you've got to understand, in order to, in order to be able to consider this theory as anything more than just a preposterous idea, you've got to sort of look into the way the electric universe says celestial bodies interact with each other in terms of their electrical fields. And, uh, um, you know, as I said before, a lot of what mythology tells us before we start trying to reinterpret mythology as some form of, you know, um, anthropomorphic drama uh, that is, you know, taking place between entities or whatever, the, the, way, the way it's portrayed in movies and, and, uh, and, and, and modern interpretations of mythology. When we look at the, 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 the very original mythological accounts and so on like that, we're seeing evidence of um uh electrical activity in the heavens um jupiter is the god of the thunderbolts uh venus is a planet that is bathed in a blue star light that makes it um a you know a very unique experience but also can become a very deadly experience when when it comes too close um to uh to the earth uh during these times And, and this is what you have to uh, take into account we're talking about planetary ping pong um not actually touching but where electrical fields interact in the same way uh that they do here on earth uh you've you know you must have experienced times during a dry winter when you shuffled across the carpet and then touch something metal and you get that zap um well the same thing happens between different electrically charged objects in space they zap each other they don't crash into each other it's more like they zap each other with with, with you know electrical uh, reactions between them and this explains the thunderbolts of jupiter at a later date in mythology it also explains a lot of venus's behavior it certainly explains the birth of the planet venus and why venus is such an oddball planet uh, in our solar system with very unique characteristics and uh um, but it's, it's essentially we're asking the reader to consider that when celestial bodies um, travel through space, they develop around them what's called a, um, uh, it's just gone from my mind, a plasma sphere. Um, it's, it's, it's often called a, uh, for some reason I can't remember uh, the, uh, the name of the guy uh, that uh, coined it. It's it, what happens is, is that when objects move through different fields, they develop a, a sheath around themselves, a plasma sheath that protects their internal charged electrical field from the outside electrical field. However, those bubbles or sheaths that's, that, um, that uh, uh, envelop these electrical bodies can be overwhelmed by very powerful electrical fields that they may encounter. So, Saturn begins as a brown dwarf, a free-floating brown dwarf, a rogue planet, even if you want, for that matter, that we're now discovering uh, a lot of these ones, that is coming up in, according to my theory, coming up from the south 
uh, of the uh, sun uh, in, a, in a wide spiraling motion where it catches up with the sun and the sun's own heliosphere, which is its own plasma, plasma she um, uh, sheath uh, uh, sphere um, in terms of the electric universe model, uh, when that brushes with Saturn's bubble um, and such, that creates an electrical interaction uh, that uh, results in Saturn fissioning, but also accelerates Saturn into a collision course proper with the sun where Saturn and its, and its uh, satellites will be captured um, by the sun and become planetary bodies of that sun. And so it's electrical forces that are governing this. It's not, it's gravity is involved in it, but it's electrical forces that are uh, part of this, um, uh, uh, you know, part of this process. And for those who sort of, you know, where's the evidence, what's the proof? The electric universe points to comets. Um, we see comets, we're told that they flare up because the sun's um, heat is causing a, uh, you know, a sublimation of the ice that comets are made up. They're great big dirty snowballs uh, as such. And so the ice flares up and you get these, you know, these small, relatively small rocks become these enormous light objects uh, in the, in the uh, Earth's sky uh, while they do their path passage around the sun and then back out to where they come from. And uh, the cometary tail and its light glow is, you know, is a feature uh, of a comet that makes them so special. In the electric universe, this is considered to be an electrical uh, interaction or reaction by the comet, which is not a dirty snowball. It's a piece of rock. Uh, it's solid. It's terrestrial. And uh, it has a different electrical charge. And when it comes into the sun's own electrical field, which is what people refer to as the solar wind and so on like that, it reacts by, go by um, becoming highly electrical and the plasma that it creates goes into glow mode. And uh, that glow mode, um, rather than dark mode, plasma having the three phases, has dark mode, glow mode, and arc mode. It goes into glow mode and uh, and basically retains that while it's interacting um, with the sun's electrical uh, field. Um, and much of this is precisely what was experienced by Saturn. So you can think of Saturn becoming like a giant comet with Earth and Mars in its toe as it's been captured by the sun and then eventually being ripped up like the comet Levy was ripped up by Jupiter um you know the the, the planetary ne nebula of saturn being torn apart and reconfigured according to electrical principles into the configuration that we see today when the original state of saturn first became illuminated and you said they had this kind of large explosion of knowledge and knowledge of uh, time and uh -huh. things of that nature is sure. was this the what you would consider the catalyst to uh you know human evolution this big spark that we see this big jump we see from from human neanderthal to to modern human yeah well it's you know i mean it's it's certainly um the the technological spark all right it's um you know uh, human capacity was actually there at the time uh they were able to seize upon what was in their minds being given to them this, this sudden change um very frightening change for them at the time i am not 
a this is a bit of a sidebar i do not subscribe to the neanderthal breeding with humans concept um, of these times to me neanderthals were a separate species of hominid um, a very dangerous species i i propagate in a book i wrote with a another guy cosmos and collision that during the purple dawn humankind engaged in basically a neolithic uh, world war with um uh with neanderthals uh, the advantage being that uh, we we could we we could organize further beyond the uh, family units into tribal units. We uh, were able to domesticate dogs, and uh, we had the technology not only for um, you know spear throwing weapons and so on, but we also had fire uh, at that time. Neanderthals kind of understood fire; they never got past the idea of uh, going beyond their family units. Um, they cannibalized each other, let alone, they certainly predated on humans. That last thing you wanted to be was caught by a Neanderthal because that they might be shorter than us. They were probably three, four times stronger than us. But like a gorilla, you know, but like a chimpanzee can tear your arms off uh, if it really wanted to. They have that kind of strength. Um, so I know that people are out there saying that Europeans and Asian people have Neanderthal genes in them. Uh, and so on. But that's based on one sample that had two different outcomes by two different groups, the Max Planck uh, um, uh, group of people. And I can't remember the other group. The other group, um, you know, did not find uh, the, um, uh, the, the, the sort of human gene marker uh, in, in the Neanderthal sample they had. Uh, whereas the other group did. Now, see, a lot of people seem to think that what they found was evidence that we have Neanderthal genes in us. But the way it's worked out is that one group found what looked like an, a, a human gene genome, uh, part, part of the human genome, in the Neanderthal, which they assumed had been passed on to us. All right. Do you, do you get that? It's not that we carry mm. Neanderthal genes. They've never said that. The media loves that idea <laughs> that we're descendants or we're, you know, we're hybrids of um, of the Neanderthal. But it's um, it, what's more likely is that it was a contaminated sample compared to the other one where they found nothing of this kind. And they are assuming that because there is this evidence of human genetics, rather than it being a contamination by the people involved in it, uh, they're assuming that Neanderthals had this gene that ends up in humans. You see, you see the connection there, and and so subsequently the media have, have jumped on it. They love the idea, but you know, I'm I'm one of these people who has a, a sort of a, a, a belief more in in traditional biology, where it comes to the fact that you know, even if you could breed with a Neanderthal. Uh, there is enough of a difference between their ge um, their genetic makeup and ours that the uh, you know the 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 product of that uh, uh, breeding would be made sterile because a Neanderthal is a, is is actually more different um, genetically to us than let's say a donkey is to a horse. A horse and a donkey are very very close, much closer than than Neanderthals or humans could ever have been, and yet when they when a horse gets a, a donkey mare pregnant or a donkey stallion gets a horse mare um, pregnant, it creates a sterile mule. Uh, they cannot breed uh, after that. And this is one of those, you could call it a failsafe that has come down through you know, biology that even the esoteric religions talk about and so on, that 
you know, the, the, the Star Trek concept of hybrids or the science fiction concept of hybrids being viable generators of a new population. It just doesn't work. Um, hybrids can be made and they always have to be manufactured through breeding of closely related genetic species, but they always uh, are very sterile or even if they can have children, um, not by another hybrid of, you know, same type of hybrid, but let's say, you know, uh, a donkey again with a, the progeny of a, of a horse, um, a, a female horse, uh, you will end up with very sickly uh, chill, you know, uh, progeny that uh, will will ultimately die off. They, you can't, in a nutshell, you can't create a viable breeding population through hybridization. All right, it's why all the hybrid plants die off, and so on. That they that they're trying to get us to feed off now. They love that that is happening, but you know that's a, that's a side sort of idea. So, or, you know, of what's happening. So, going back to your original um, question, um, my you know supposition is that the um, when Saturn fissions in its first electrical brush with the sun and becomes this bright sun and such and changes the planet, um, you know, as it is, uh, humans are humans at that time. Um, they are, uh, they have been humans for probably 20, 30, you know, 40,000 years in terms of that. So I'm not discounting evolutionary changes and, and, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, uh mutations. Uh, you know, as part of the process. But certainly at this time, I'm arguing that humans from the Purple Dawn were as humans as we are today. Uh, they might have been a bit more robust, um, you know, different diets, that kind of thing, but mm. they essentially had the same capacities that we have today uh, and we have the same that they had back then. Right. Well, you were talking about how this original cosmology has influenced our knowledge of time and the stars but it uh, also had a huge influence on spirituality apparently uh and the the birth of a lot of these original occult practices uh, i want right. to get into that and how that became corrupted over the years and turned into something we see more of a control system right well that is directly related to the doomsday event all right so you have this wonderful period of uh, golden age time which you know i explained to people is not about fish jumping into your frying pan and nobody has to go and do any work it's a golden age because people are discovering how to map out the world they 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 it's a it's a, it's a grand age of um of exploration and so on in the time when there was no scarcity there was no um uh, food um, scarcities of, of any kind. Uh, there was like a perpetual harvest on the earth because of the twin uh, light of Saturn and, and the sun, uh, you know, being down on the planet and such. So people could get on with the job of exploring the world that they were in and, and, uh, and, and so on. And as a result of those explorations and uh, as interactions between human beings and this ability, uh, you, of course, you need a set of what's called weights and measures to be able to, you know, to operate a growing civilization. And the weights and measures of the golden age are effectively perfect in that they're all accepted and they're all trusted. All right. After Saturn's capture and this um, golden age is underway, it belies the fact that the people would not have known that Saturn was under stress. 
and Saturn would become more ill. And the mythologists tell us this. They talk about the, you know, the great god, the sleeping god who becomes the god of light, who then becomes the ill, sick god who attempts to eat all his children. And, you know, keep that in mind for what we're going to talk about, the rituals at a later stage. And so um, this this Saturn um, god and, and its, its um, family of planets, the, the birthed Venus and Mars down at the bottom and so on like that, they're actually all under a tremendous amount of electrical stress. And that means the earth is under electrical stress as well um, by the sun. And as it gets, as, as we get sucked up into the sun uh, in this polar configuration of planets, because we're trailing Saturn as we're uh, being pulled into the sun, uh, you know, with Venus, the newly born Venus that was ejected from Saturn at the beginning of the golden age. Um, and, uh, um, underneath Venus, you have Mars, and then underneath Mars, you have you have um, the Earth. And you look up, and Saturn looks like this ringed eye with a pupil and an iris, uh, you know, in itself. Again, keep that in mind for the kinds of symbols that become dominant, especially mm. in Western esoteric and occult thinking. Um, but this system is under extreme stress, and it will break up. There's no doubt about it. the people on Earth didn't know that. But it was going to break up. So when it breaks up, it's all a horrible surprise. And as a part of that breaking up, a lot of water, because brown dwarf stars are copious carriers of water, when Saturn flared originally, tremendous amount of water was expelled from Saturn. And um, the um, uh, some of that water became Saturn's rings, icy rings. Um, but a lot of that went out into space. And it is that cloud of water that on on, on the later breakup at the end of the Golden Age, as the whole Saturnian system of planets starts to become too unwieldy, they crash into this cloud of icy particles that's out in the, um, uh, you know, is doing its own process of being captured by the sun. And as a result of that, uh, everything breaks up and the Earth is absolutely deluged by um, rain, um, you know, coming in from the... Um, uh, from space, these icy particles that uh, crash down onto the planet. And of course, this is where you get your Atlantis, uh, you know, concepts and uh, theories, the, the great deluge stories and people surviving a great deluge at the end of that. Mm -hmm. And uh, in at this time, um, you get a, a situation where Mars and Venus run completely amok, um, they, uh, you know, they they break out of uh, their uh, out of the control of uh, Saturn's um, electrical uh, forces, um, and they start finding their own way. And in the process, not only do they electrically, you, you could say, to, in, from the eyes of the people on the planet, they electrically attack each other, but they also attack the Earth. So Venus, the the, the goddess of beauty and and everything like that becomes the the horrendous Medusa, the, the snake hair. That's all your electrical tendrils, the filamentary effects that are taking place there. And these planets on passing by can zap cities. They can um, they can create, you know, in my opinion, they they created the Grand Canyon right. um, at one point. That one must have been one hell of a day to be on Earth. Uh, when that got excavated electrically and the same thing is happening on mars mars becomes the scarred god because you know uh it has that giant canyon that's you know five times deeper than than the grand canyon and five times bigger and you know that's the scarred warrior the red planet scarred warrior persona is created during this time and 
everything changes on the earth. The earth no longer has one season. It has it starts to um, experience seasons, which brings uh, the concept of scarcity, uh, seasonal scarcity, as far as uh, people are, are there. And as a result of that cataclysm, people have this yearning of getting back to how it was in the golden age. It was so much better. Uh, you didn't worry about where your food was coming from. Everybody trusted everybody. Everybody trusted the, the laws and the weights and the measures and so on like that. And so the surviving groups of, these, uh, of this time um, start to coalesce with one particular aim, how to survive being number one, but how to regain that um, wonderful time uh, when uh, you know you didn't have these scarcity problems uh, that we have on the earth. And so therefore, uh, they looked to the weights and measures and what had been preserved uh, from that time, and they tried to apply it to the new age they had. This is now the Silver Age period when the priesthood start to come into their own. And it's a benevolent time in the sense that people are desperately just trying to get back to something that was good by you know, refounding what uh, was good. But as the biblical account on this um, tells us as a result of this cataclysm, you know, by the sweat of your brow, you'll have to make the earth yield its fruits. And there is, unfortunately, within the human condition, people who uh, don't want to use the sweat of their brow to make the earth yield its fruits. They'd rather use other people's sweat to do that. Mm -hmm. And so you, the corruption starts when you get people who try to, you know, they, they, they essentially try to uh, get a free ride on the backs of others. And what they find is that rather than just saying, look, I'll beat you up if you don't uh, go and, you know, get all my food for me and do my fishing for me and all that sort of thing, they find that they can exploit um, a lot of uh archetypes, deep-seated archetypes in people because the whole of humanity is very traumatized at this time. And they find that they can exploit these um, uh, the, the trauma uh, that has created these archetypes within people to convince people to do what they're told, uh, you know, as, as such as that goes. And so these people become the arbitrators of what the new weights and measures are. And they quickly learn that there is great power in symbols that are related to these terrible archetypes because the symbols will trigger these archetypes and it gives them a certain amount of power. Um, and, and so it's in their interests to, to become elite, so to speak, uh, in the sense that they become the guardians of what's the knowledge of these symbols and the meanings are and how it relates back to this once paradise. And we're the people that are going to lead you back to this. Just do what you're told. Mm. Well, do you think that there was actual validity to the use of magic or ritual magic or these occult practices? Do you think they could literally harness some of the powers from these these planets and these archetypes and cause an effect uh, in, in the real world here on Earth? Well, certainly psychologically amongst human beings, all right? It's mm. not, you know, it's the old um, sort of adage that... Um, um, it's it's you know it's not what I believe it's what you believe if I'm seeking to control you so if I can control what you believe I have magical powers um, the you know you, you see films and so on you you know illiterate peoples who have encountered 
talented peoples with with uh, writing, you know, they're, they're gobsmacked when somebody can put an idea down on paper, uh, give it to somebody, take it to another literate person uh, with a piece of information that, that no one else knows other than the person carrying the letter. He gives them the letter and suddenly that person knows their information. Um, you know, the, the concept of planting an idea, uh, in other words, knowledge, gnosis, um, you know, this is where you, uh, you know, you get all these, um, uh, the, not, not necessarily a cult, but it's, it's the basis of an esoteric, uh, you know, uh, motive is to get the knowledge, um, to have the knowledge uh, of uh, what once was, what was lost. You find this particularly in the esoteric fields related to masonry, you know, guys like uh, Manly P. Hall and so on like that. It's all about getting a knowledge that is lost and in so doing, giving yourself an advantage. Now, the key here, Christopher, is, is, is that it's how you use that knowledge. All right. And that's where things become either malicious or they become beneficial. Um, a lot of people lose sight. When I write about the Saturn death cult, they just see Saturn as an evil god and so on. But the original Saturn is actually, though he becomes a killer, and it's all part of the uh, the mythos that, you know, infuses Saturn worship, which is very different from Satanism and, and, and things. Like that. And we can talk about that as well at a later point. But uh, once, uh, the, you know, they, they look on the Saturn god as just purely evil or some expression of that and such. But the the key to knowledge and the key to understanding it is gaining the knowledge either for uh, beneficial means or for um, uh, malicious means. And why I put the emphasis that, um, you know, why in my book uh, the emphasis is on weights and measures is simply because the greatest magic ever created on the earth is debt-based finance or debt-based money systems uh, that immediately enslave the person who is lent the money to the person who does the lending. And, and money being the ultimate measure of productivity, the value of your productive output, your creativity, what you're willing to take um, in, in exchange for what you, what you build, your productivity. In a world of scarcity, if you control the mechanism that defines that value and you can issue it um, uh, you know, as a debt, in other words, it's all got to come back to you. And if it doesn't come back with the interest owed on it and so on, you get to take everybody's stuff. That is just too much of a temptation uh, in terms of bad magic if you want to use those sorts of terms, it's a form of magic, alchemism, alchemy. Um, uh, it's too much of a temptation on the part of some people, as I said, who they don't want to wait for a new golden age. They can get it now by getting everybody to do the work um, and so on. And this is why we, since Babylonian times, we've gone through these periods, uh, constant boom and bust cycles where they keep reintroducing back the system because eventually everybody knows what a con job um interest oh. you know based banking is uh and, and you know and so that finally it happens at least every 70 years every 100 years or so that you get a bust of that type but every 450 years or so you get a major major um realization on the part of the population that it's bad oh. but the, the 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 magic is in their ability to reintroduce these systems, and I argue that they're very adept at using 
at, at, at exploiting our deep down archetypes through the use of symbols to once again assert control. It's the greatest magic on earth. Yeah, the ability to make something out of nothing and claim it's worth everything that everybody makes. Well, what are we looking at when we're talking about modern Saturn worship and why does this com confusion come in with Satanism? Satan's a Johnny come lately. Satan is a part of the Abrahamic religions. Mm -hmm. uh, it's um, And the fundamental difference is not so much to concentrate on Satan, the devil, God, that kind of thing. It's to concentrate on the nature of what the god Saturn um, has come uh, to promise worshippers as opposed to what the Abrahamic god uh, promises worshippers. And the fundamental difference between the Abrahamic god that promises essentially justice uh, or through judgment, all right? So you've got in the Abrahamic religions, the concept is judgment day, where a righteous god comes down and puts uh, to right all the wrongs that humanity has built up over time through, you know, their free will, whatever it is. But Judgment Day is 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 the primal archetype um, in the uh, Abrahamic religions that have developed, uh, you know, s since the beginning of that particular type. Saturn worship, which goes back further, originally had the idea of a righteous God. He's the one who brought light and therefore the ability to calculate time, which goes on to all the weights and measures that we use um, to govern the way we work with each other, the way we contract with each other, the way we agree with each other to do things and, and so on. And when when we have a problem, we, we uh, appeal to those weights and measures for justice and such, all right? The difference is, is that in the Saturnian uh, form of worship, the great distortion is that um, the Saturnian archetypal God is a capricious God. He's not a God of justice. He's a capricious God who one day may just decide, I'm going to start all over again and everything's going to get destroyed. What do I care? And so what happens is that that moves people um, towards not justice, a, a, you know, a culture of justice in terms of the God they worship, but a culture of influence. They need to influence the Saturnian capricious God in such a way that when he lets, when he cuts loose and decides that's it, he might not come and get you. You might survive it. And in the process, as a result of surviving that, uh, you know, cataclysm, that Saturnian cataclysm, uh, you, you now kind of rule the earth, um, you know, in the absence of those who were destroyed by this, Capricious Saturn. I, I liken people who worship Saturn are very similar to people, and I say this a lot in a lot of interviews. It's very similar to people who are part of a gang where you've got an extremely violent gang leader. And within that culture of that gang, what you find is that everybody is, because he's unpredictable in his violence and so on, they 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 position themselves to try and always be on his good side so that when he finally you know when he loses it whenever that happens when he just get wakes up with a bad mood or whatever um you've positioned yourself and influenced him enough that when he decides that he's going to machine gun everybody in the room you're the one guy who doesn't get machine gunned mm. uh and, and, you know that, that that's this is what saturnian worship is actually all about so they don't believe in judgment day they believe in doomsday and they believe that the way to survive a doomsday is to position yourself where you have influenced 
the power of the creative God that can destroy the universe however he wishes, and you've influenced it in such a way, influenced that, that, that power in such a way that you survive. Now, it's not a hop, skip, and a jump. It's less than that to understand that when you have that kind of thinking, you are naturally going to propagate a culture that is based around influence rather than justice. And this is why, particularly in the West, um, you know, our society is so dominated by, you know, groups, you know, in crowds, cliques, that kind of stuff, Masonic um, influence, uh, you know, uh, where people who are who are members of the right club um, get a pass on uh, whatever law they've broken compared to people who are not members of the club. Mm. And that's the... When, when people say, what is a Saturn death cult? If you, you know, apart from central banking, which is a crime, in my opinion, yeah. apart from that, uh, the modern society is absolutely infused with this idea of I must have influence if I'm going to get to the, you know, get to the top in the world. That influence gaming can come in all kinds of shapes, sexism, racism, um, you know, uh, um, class you know class warfare that all this sort of stuff nationalism all of this kind of stuff but uh that's the world that we live in and the original silver age priesthoods they originally wanted a world where everybody could appeal to a justice system that was had accurate weights measures and laws that the lowest and the highest in the land whatever your status was in terms of your achievements Everybody could appeal and know they know they would get a um, you know a good deal uh, in terms of how law law was given, uh, and you know this is the key to the old uh, priesthood systems of, of 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 the Silver Age, but these were corrupted by people who could see that money could give them the kind of power uh, that um, that would give them an advantage over everyone else, and then also over a period of time. Um, the interpretation of mythology morphed into this idea of the capricious Saturnian god type, archetype god, yeah. um, that you've got to somehow influence. You can't appeal to justice, you know. Uh, 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 the, the, you know the Abrahamic idea is that God is as much subject to his laws as we are. Mm. All right, that's that's a fundamental of that and that's what makes him righteous that he never breaks his own laws it breaks his own laws whatever you want to do right. that's the abrahamic concept okay mm. the saturnian concept is that you've got this god that doesn't care about justice he only cares about who's right with him and who's not do you believe that they really um believe in this archetype that they've created as an actual deity or do they see it as just a powerful archetype that can uh dictate some of the actions that that are happening here mm. i think you know over time the modern world the the high ups and this kind of thing a bit like in some of the abrahamic religions they, they don't see it as an as an entity mm -hmm. all right that uh, exists in it. they see it as a as, as a force of power a force of nature a force of um of the universe it's not really a force of nature it's the force that governs nature um and such and uh you know this is what they they strive for because they think they can influence it they think they can mold it and manipulate it 
And that's why magic and ritual are so important to them. So they believe that magic and ritual works. Why? Because they are powerful. They have become powerful. The people who are at the very top, the movers and shakers, not the puppets, not the people we see in office, not the people um, that we see as our icons and uh, and such, but the, you know, the the the, the, the truly influential families and groups, um, organizations behind the scenes uh, that uh, use influence, use their influence, use their power over the monetary system um, to get what they want. This is all the proof you need that they're that they've got something happening for them because you know. Mm-hmm. They're in charge. They have the money. They have all the. They can do what they what they want and get away with it. Therefore, their magic must be strong. That's you know one of the things that uh, you know I see about it. And and you can't deny that there's a certain amount of logic um, in how that is uh, you know applied uh, to 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 their mindset. Um, also, it, it it explains also why uh, we have a system. Um, that it's born out of this culture where people on the outside will willingly get involved and ultimately uh, willingly to partake in some of the uh, behavior that uh, becomes uh, associated. And when, you know, we hear stories about horrific occult rituals, murder, human sacrifice, cannibalism, this kind of stuff. All right. And uh, a lot of us can't understand uh, why people would do that. But if you're, wanting to um if you're wanting to uh, advance in the world that these people control you have to do the things that give them power over you to elevate you um where they can trust you to do what it is so it becomes blackmail material and so on but there's an even more um like you know like a very sinister sort of aspect about this is that Within the distortions that have come down, the original Saturnian priesthoods after the um, uh, the doomsday events and so on, the end of the Golden Age, they were resurrectionist in nature in terms of their um, thinking. If you look at the Egyptian um, religions, you look at the Chinese, you look at the um, Mesoamerican cultures, it's resurrectionist. They go, they go to their deaths in the hope of being resurrected um, by Saturn, by God whatever into into a better world the kingdom of god with you know if, if you take the christian idea and so on like that on the other hand there was an, a separate concept that started to become infused in some of the early priesthoods which was more uh centered around reincarnationist ideas and reincarnation holds that you can you know be born back into the world um, you know, as a, as a soul, you leave it and you get born. You've got the Buddhist version, which is a benign version of it. But the virulent form, um, the extremely malicious form that it comes out of Moloch worship, Saturn worship, this, all these associated with the, the more destructive form of this um, this type of worship, is that, again, it comes down to the influence. If you can influence, and you are a nobody on this plane, but you can partake in rituals that influence Saturn, you can be born back into one of these powerful families. You see how it goes? You don't, you don't make the jump in your life now 
than that. You're never gonna you're never gonna be you know the head of the child of the Roth uh, table of the Rothschilds or anybody like that. Mm. You know the usual suspects that they've got. What you can do is you can um, you can do something in this life that guarantees that you are born a Rothschild. You're born an SD. You're born a you know one of these families, or you're born into whatever because uh, you're owed that for what you did, and that's that's mm. why. Everything is so much about influence and not justice because, because the nature of mythology and the interpretation of Saturn becoming homicidal at the end of his life where he's killing his children, he's eating his children, he's doing all this kind of stuff. For, uh, the goddess Venus is obliterating people and killing people left, right, and center, and Venus is the god of war and destruction and so on like that. Um, you know, where you – these these mythological – accounts become anthropomorphized in terms of the rituals that people believe will make them like the gods in terms of their behavior. You become like them, you have influence with them. I'm one of you. I'm like you. I think like you. I do the same rituals. I kill I kill babies and eat babies like you did, Saturn, and so on. And that uh, that hopefully in their mind elevates them to a position that when they're born again, they're no longer you know, some, you know, third-rate Mason, you know, living in a third-rate town uh, and such, they're born into a family with clout. Uh, and I think this is this is goes a long way to explaining, um, you know, some of the stories that we hear about these rituals. They're not stories. They're actually, there's, there's plenty of evidence that this has happened down through history. Yeah, the ritual aspect of like soul transfer and being able to be reincarnated into certain families, mm-hmm. that is absolutely fascinating to me. And that could be a whole whole other show. But what I want to close on today is what it, we're seeing unfolding now with all of the mm-hmm. obvious agendas for, for grasping of control, power, probably depopulation, uh, all these nefarious things that we're right in the midst of. I see yeah. uh, a kickback. I see that they are failing in many aspects. And I think that we are, we might be coming to that era that you were speaking of where collectively we realize this is bad and we're trying to uh, fight against that. Do you see the same things? Absolutely. I I have nothing but um, optimism uh, for the future, Uh, even though it's going to be very scary at times. Well, let me put it this way. Uh, If we'd had this conversation uh, four years ago, uh, we would have gotten to the point where we talked about how there is not only do they have ritual at a personal level or a group level or even a corporate level, they have a concept of a global ritual, uh, you know, that history ultimately is their ultimate ritual. And that's why they seek to uh, influence how history happens so that you have all these bloodletting rights, world wars, um genocides things like that that just feed into the whole energy of the planet little you know so you know it, it's sort of like yeah they're killing babies and eating babies in in, in in occult rituals according to some people they're also murdering off entire uh, you know ethnic groups mm. um and so on they're creating the environment for this to happen in the world and the way they do that is by by creating scarcity through their control of the money system and such where they pit people against other people and so on like that. And that's where you get uh, this huge ritualistic push um, that involves all of these um, blood sacrifice events that, uh, that, you know, we call wars and genocides and famines and so on. Well, four years ago, 
um, you know, I would have, we would have discussed, you know, yeah, they're going to attempt something. There's an up, upcoming attempt um, to cull the planet as a giant uh, blood ritual, um, as a final push into a new golden age that is controlled by, you know, transhumanist mm. technologies, um, by, um, um, you know, various uh, collectivist political ideologies, um, that sort of thing where, you know, we live in a world where we're not told what we can't do, we're told what we can only do. Um, and, you know, it's a very subtle distinction that a lot of people don't realize that, you know, in terms of the collectivist mindset, Bolshevism and its connection into Satan worship and so on. They want to tell you what you're allowed to do and only allowed to do. And uh, as part of that, of course, they need to bring the human population under control because they're all Malthusians. You know, you know the Malthus guy that they were, that the, that you know, population's too much when the when the planet can't support the population food-wise. Um, I'm of the position that this planet could take care of 50 billion people um, if we got rid of the um, the uh, scarcity making machines of our financial system and so on like that, uh, we would have a huge uh, capacity um, to, you know, work with this planet in ways that these guys just can't allow because they, they're Malthusians, uh, Malthusian thinker, thinkers, where they're petrified about losing control over resources because they think that's the natural way it is in the world. They don't understand uh, that there is, you know, uh, you know, the, you know, Tesla's concepts of energy. We could have free energy a hundred years ago if he'd been allowed to uh, work his ideas and so on. Um, you know, uh, just you know, as as one of these examples. And so, uh, these people um, who think this way, uh, you know, are very keen to cull us down to the magical five hundred million people that was on the now destroyed Georgia Guidestones. I think it was them. I th uh, you know, I think they realized that that was just too much of a, you know, something we could point to that that's their objective. And four years ago, um, knowing all this and so on, would we really have predicted the attempt that is the pandemic to get rid of as many people as possible? That's my opinion uh, as mm -hmm. to the role that the pandemic has played. Mm -hmm. I honestly believe that they really were modeling it on first world war situations they expected a nuclear war limited nuclear war of some degree that they would then launch a pandemic into which would then move into a famine uh and and the pestilence that that brings and that's how they would bring the earth basically under their control they've got they got all their you know bunkers and places that they can hide out from the rest of us and so on but thankfully it just hasn't gone that way for them yeah and uh you know uh, with the advent of cryptocurrency is another thing that I I look as a as a game changer that over the last three and a half thousand years people have not had um, to fight these people uh, with we can now we can run our own money systems now and that's something and we can do it without it being a debt uh, you know that takes such a massive amount of control away from them and so you know I think things will be chaotic, but I think the world is going to experience a wonderful jubilee uh, in terms that all debt is going to be um, uh, repudiated because 
the central banks have created debt. It's an onerous debt. It's a, it's a crime. You, 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 you know, it's like, you know, a bank robber stealing the money from the bank. He gets caught, but he gets to keep his money. No, he doesn't, you know, so it's the same thing. Eh? These guys are bank robbers in that they create a central banking system that robs us of the, of, you know, of the profit of our productivity. Uh, we have to, we have to take their mark. We have to, we have to buy and sell according to their system. That's changed, and they didn't get rid of enough of us. And there, I, you know, I think we're on the, the cusp of new new technologies, not only for financial stuff but for energy production. Uh, that sort of stuff. I'm very optimistic, Chris. I'm very optimistic um, that we've arrived at this point. I just don't know how many people are, are you know, gonna get hit. Yeah, um, I'm optimistic too, and I think that free thinkers and people that are on the right side of history are now becoming the majority, if not already. So that gives yeah. me even more hope uh, for, for the future. Yeah. Well, Troy, this was fantastic. Like I said, we're, we're barely scratching the surface. I think we covered a good bit of ground, though, but there's still mm -hmm. so much more we could talk about. I would love to have you back on sometime soon, and we go Be even deeper. Great. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you very much for out, having me on. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Before you head out, let the audience know where they can find your work, if you have any other type of social media, anything like that. Well, actually, I don't do social media that much. I just rely on my Amazon sales for my book. My book is available mm -hmm. on Amazon as a Kindle. It's not a not in print. I have a website called uh, satindeathcult.com mm -hmm. uh, for people who, you know, for whatever reason, can't afford the book or just don't want to invest in Amazon you know, Amazon's profits or whatever, the website gives a tremendous, you know, gives basically the full idea of what's there. If you buy the book, you'll get a lot more in terms of um, uh, pictorial, uh, uh, you know, graphics, that kind of stuff. Uh, there's a there's a lot more in the book that's on the website, but the website's a good place to start if you just want to dip your toe in this kind of concept. Another book I've got is um, uh, The uh, Purple Dawn of Creation, which is a pre-sequel. kind of discusses what life might have been like on Earth before the capture of Saturn by the sun as posited in, in Saturn Death Cult. So there is that there to go. And, uh, yeah, shout out to uh, yourself, Chris, and all people like you who give people like me such a great uh, way of reaching people. Without you guys... You know, it couldn't be done. And again, this is part of the process of why I believe we're winning. So thanks again, for, you know, for having me on your show. Um, well, thank you. Thank you for your research. Yeah. Thank you for your work. And I think it's it's people like yourselves that are bringing this stuff to light as well. We need more of you. So this was great. Uh, and we'll definitely have to do it again in the future. My pleasure. Until next time, everyone, have an excellent evening. We'll talk again tomorrow. We'll see y'all all then. What can we do to fight back against Big Pharma and the compromised medical industry? We can become healthy and break free from the perpetual cycle of being poisoned by criminal organizations like most pharmaceutical companies. Come check out what may be the most powerful antioxidant known to man, C60 Purple Power. The benefits of C60 have been personally outstanding. I use it every day and I feel incredible. I have tons of energy, I sleep great, and I haven't even come down with a cold since I started using C60 over two years ago. You can even get C60 for your pets. Do your own research, click the link in the description, and check out their website. If you order from that link or use coupon code KNOWLEDGE10, 
you get 10% off your order plus free shipping. What is your health worth to you?